would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 95. No doubt, uh, throughout your Christian life, you have spent a significant amount of time in the Psalms. When you perhaps have gone through periods of discouragement, of loneliness, or of trials of different kinds in your life, perhaps you instinctively turn to the Psalms for comfort. Turning to the Psalms to look for guidance to help you in your prayers to the Lord. You know that it is here in the Psalms that the whole spectrum of human emotion is covered. And so there are Psalms of thanksgiving. There are Psalms that seek to worship and praise and adore the Lord, such as the one that we'll consider together this morning. There are Psalms that are filled with wisdom and Psalms of lament in which the psalmist pours out his heart in great transparency to the Lord in sorrow, in pain, or in struggle. And so what the Psalms do is not only do they act as a mirror, sort of revealing our hearts to us, exposing that which is within, but the Psalms also show us as God's people what our hearts are to be like as we go through this life in a fallen and broken world. As those who are God's covenant people, one of the questions that ought to always be before us is this, how then should we live? How should we live as those who are called out by His grace to live as a distinctive and unique people? Now consider in your own life for just a moment of the prevailing emotion that you experienced in the past week. What was it that filled your thoughts, that seemed to dominate your heart? Was it anxiety or fear or distrust, anger towards God and others? perhaps grumbling and complaining at all of the minor irritants of life, perhaps a heart that was filled with pride and self-interest that was exhibited in your conversation, always seeking to bring the conversation back to yourself in some way. Who of us, as we look just to the past week, can really say that we have lived consistently as God's people? Who of us does not need the comfort encouragement and redirection that the Psalms offer us. And so what the Psalms do is very tenderly, sometimes very painfully, tear away the callous buildup within our hearts, showing us what really drives us, showing us what really rules us. The Psalms force you to answer the question, what brings you joy and delight in life? Is it living with you at the center Or is it living a life that revolves around the glorious nature of God? And so the Psalms redirect you to what truly ought to bring you joy and delight. Namely, a submission to the authority of your God. And this Psalm, Psalm 95 in particular, does a masterful job of taking deep, rich truths about God's nature and infusing that into a covenant relationship with Him helping us understand what our response should be because of who God is and His nature. And so let's look at Psalm 95 together this morning and consider together how its authority ought to guide and direct us. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the infallible word of our God. Now the first thing to notice about this psalm is all of life is worship. This is one of the most well-known psalms in the Bible. It is one that is used quite frequently to call God's people to worship. And really we could say that the purpose for which we were created, the purpose for which we have been redeemed, is to worship the Lord, is to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And not only are we called, of course, to worship Him on into eternity, but we could say as those who are His redeemed people now, the purpose for our existence is to worship Him. And so to speak of worship is certainly to speak of the time that we gather together here on the Lord's Day to worship Him together corporately. But even more than that, we could say that worship is getting at everything that we do no matter where we are. The world is not made up of worshipers and non-worshippers. We learn that here. We learn that in Romans chapter 1. The world is filled with those who worship all the time, either worshiping the Lord or worshiping the creation. And so really we could say that much of Christian living is growing to understand where we have failed to worship the Lord at every point in our lives, understanding and recognizing that disconnect in our own lives. Much of Christian living is seeking to identify where we, perhaps very subtly, worship the creation instead of the Creator. And as we identify in our own lives, as we see more clearly those areas of inconsistency and false worship, we could say that Christian living means seeking His forgiveness and mercy and seeking to grow in greater obedience to the Lord. And you remember the book of Jonah. You all know the story well. Jonah is on the ship with those pagan sailors heading in the exact opposite direction of where the Lord told him to go. And it is the storm that is hurled down upon that ship from above. And the sailors cast lots to find out who is the source of their trouble. And the lot falls upon Jonah. And the sailors come to him and they ask him who he is, what his occupation is, where he comes from. What is your identity, Jonah? What is your vocation? And he replies in chapter 1, verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What a great answer, isn't it? Such an orthodox statement of his identity. Something that we could confess even in our own worship on a Sunday morning. 
I belong to the Lord, the creator of all that is, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has made us his people. He is the one whom I fear, and he is the one that I serve. The question posed to Jonah, what is your identity, elicits this response. I belong to the Lord, and I fear him. Everywhere I go, he is there. And so all of life is to belong to him. And of course, Jonah's life is a walking contradiction, isn't it? He is like the one who professes with his mouth that the Lord is his, and yet whose heart is far from him. But it's the same logical connection that is made here in this psalm. This is who the Lord is, and this is who you are because of his intrusion of grace into your life to make you his own. And because of his grace coming into your life and making you his special people, this then is what your response ought to be. And so all of life, first of all, is one of worship. But notice also the call, the call that goes out to God's people, the call to worship. We see that in verses 1, 2, and verse 6. The call here is to come and sing to the Lord, to come and make a joyful noise to the one who is the rock of our salvation, to come and worship and kneel before him. And really we could say that this call to come is a call of the gospel because it is only through the work of our Savior that we are enabled to come. Someone has said that when we hear this word come to worship, we need to understand that the gospel itself is contained in that word. Because you see in the garden, Adam and Eve decided to heed the word of the animal over listening to the word of their God. And because of that, all of humanity was plunged into rebellion and hardness of heart, seeking to worship the self instead of him. And because of that sin and because of that rebellion, we are cut off from the living God, incapable of coming into his presence. Because like our first parents, you see, they were banished from his presence. They were told to go from the garden because of their desire for autonomy. And so here in this psalm, even hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus was born, it is the gospel alone that can call us back, back into his presence. Because left to ourselves, in our own sin, the only proper verdict that would remain would be to go. It is grace alone that draws us to God in worship. And so when we are told to come, it is a call of grace, and you are enabled to respond only because of His grace. The old minister Robert Dabney put it something like this. Consider for a moment the natural disposition of your own heart. Hardened, at enmity toward him, filled with hatred and self-interest, dead in trespasses and sins. And yet consider your heart now. You delight in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your affections are warmed toward him. You are filled with hope and with trust. And all of that, Dabney says, is the work of the Holy Spirit alone, evidence of that intruding grace into your life. You see, think of it like this. Every time that we gather as the Lord's people and we hear that call to worship that marks the beginning of our worship service, it is that call to come to worship the Lord that is only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. If He does not invite 
If He does not compel, if He does not draw us to Himself, then we are lost and undone. And so it is the shed blood of Christ alone that is the means by which we are enabled to come into His presence. And so what does this mean for you throughout your week? What this means first and foremost is that you must allow the reality of Christ's redemptive work to penetrate deep into your hearts. We must allow the reality of Christ's redeeming work to address the apathy within your hearts that tends to creep up over and again throughout life. Allow the redeeming work of Christ to confront your indifference. Allow His work to shake you out of the routine that you sometimes fall into in just going through the motions in worshiping the Lord. Because when we understand what Jesus has done to enable us to come and worship, then we will begin to see what a great privilege it is to worship Him. Not only this day, but to approach Him with boldness and confidence every day of our lives. And so the way that you approach Him, you see, the way that you approach Him here on this Lord's Day very much shapes the way that you approach Him throughout your week. And so as you look at your life, as you consider the motives of your heart as you come to worship the Lord, can you say in agreement with the psalm in verse 2 that you come with joy and thanksgiving? Or do you simply come out of duty? Come because someone else compels you and forces you to come. Well, not only are we told to come, and not only are we enabled to come by His grace, but we are given reasons why we are to worship the Lord. Those reasons are in verses 3 through 5 and verse 7. We are told to come to worship because of who the Lord is and because of who we are. Well, first, because of who He is. We read in these verses that the Lord is the King over all, the ruler the sovereign one who reigns over all things. He is the creator of everything that is. He is our maker who has created each one of us with intimate care and design. And as the psalmist here in these verses sort of steps back for a moment from his pen, as he considers the vast expanse of creation, as he dwells upon the variety of the created order, he cannot help but be filled with awe and with wonder at God's power and goodness and His love that is displayed throughout creation. You know this to be true in your own life. You know how good it is for your soul to delight in the vast expanse of creation, to be humbled as you think about His great power and might to create and sustain all that is. Perhaps to sit for just a few moments on your summer vacation at the beach and to look out at the oceans and to consider the vast expanse of His creation. Nothing that you can see beyond the surface, but to know that the Lord knows exhaustively everything that teems with life within the oceans. Or to consider the heavens above and to be overwhelmed with the stars, each one of them known by name, each one known exhaustively by our Lord. This, you see, is what the psalmist is advocating in verse 4 as he wonders at the depths and the heights of creation, just as he does, it is good for us, you see, to marvel at the expanse of creation, to think about how little we truly know about the world in which we live. It is our God 
who has raised the mountains on high, who created the depths of the sea below, who knows all of those realms exhaustively, who holds all things together in the power of his hand, who has loving care and design behind all that he has made. This is the God who has created and who sustains, and this is the God who is your God. He knows you. He loves you. He is your king, and he is the shepherd of your souls. There is no limit to his power. There is no threat to his authority. There is no place in the created order where his presence is not known. There is nothing that compares to his glorious nature. So why do you need this? Why do you need to be reminded of the reality that God is the creator of all? Why do you need to dwell in adoration upon such attributes of the Lord? Well, because of the tendency that we have in our own lives toward discouragement. When we look at the circumstances in our life and we look at the circumstances of the world around us, it is so easy to be filled with a pessimistic attitude. We don't always perceive His power. We don't always see His goodness or His love. We don't see what we think we ought to see. It doesn't always feel like God is in charge as much as He says He is. It doesn't seem as though He's bringing about that which is best in our lives or in the lives of those whom we love. We look at the church and the church doesn't seem to grow as quickly as we think it ought. Change doesn't occur as quickly in my life as I would like it to. And change certainly doesn't occur as quickly as I would like in the lives of those around me. And so we need Psalm 95. We need to be reminded of who God is, that the one who has created such a vast universe and holds everything together in the palm of his hand, this infinitely great God knows exactly what he is doing and has such a great purpose beyond our finite and limited ability to see. We need reminding that he will accomplish his purpose and nothing will stop him from achieving his will. And so to meditate upon the reality of God as our creator informs our worship, leads to awe and reverence and delight and comfort and hope and trust. This is the creator who is also our shepherd, the one who tenderly cares for his sheep. And not only does the psalmist dwell upon God as creator, but he goes on to dwell upon God as our redeemer. And it's the reality of God as redeemer that also informs our worship. In verse 1, he is the rock of our salvation. Not only you see is he the foundation of our life, But clearly the psalmist has in mind here in verse 1, but also toward the end of this psalm, that passage from Exodus chapter 17 that we heard from earlier this morning. It is there upon their release from captivity in Egypt that the Lord's people longed for water. And they complain that the Lord has not provided for them, that he has simply brought them into the desert to die. And yet he responds in kindness by showing himself to be the rock of their salvation. In a literal sense, as water is provided from the rock, providing not only for their immediate need, but by showing them that they have a much greater need for spiritual life that can come alone from the rock. And it is the Lord who identifies himself with that rock of provision by giving them life. 
And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that this rock that was with the people of the Lord in the wilderness, providing life for them, was the Lord Jesus himself. The one who provides for their needs by granting them life, even in the midst of rebellion. It is the same rock who in our own life provides and cares. So we worship him in thanksgiving because he has redeemed us. He has redeemed us when we were just like this first generation from Egypt, filled with grumbling and complaining. Such joy and reverence, which are to be evident in our lives, is the only proper response to the one who has saved us from our sin. And so we worship him because of who he is as creator, as shepherd, and as redeemer. But we also worship him because of who we are because of whom he has made us. Well, the climax of this psalm is really in verse 7. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. This is who we are at the most essential and fundamental level. He has made us his own. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. What does this teach us about ourselves Well, primarily that we are sheep and therefore we are weak, we are defenseless, we are a foolish people, but we have a God in whom we have the most intimate of relationships. And it's not simply an authoritative relationship as a king over his subjects as though he is a tyrant who rules over us just simply wanting to control us, but it is a relationship of a shepherd to a sheep relationship of care and of love and intimacy in which he protects us, leads us, guides us, knows us intimately, loves us and comforts us. He is attentive to our needs and he provides for that deepest need of all by sending his son to die for us. As our shepherd, there is both great authority over our lives and intimate care. And so what we constantly need as God's people is to be reminded at this most essential level who we are, that it is this relationship of a shepherd to a sheep that defines us. It is this relationship of shepherd to sheep that shapes who we are. It is so critical that we be reminded of who we are in the Lord Jesus. Sheep who belong to the one who is the shepherd of our souls. The one who, as Jesus says in John chapter 10, calls us by name. And we are to know his voice and we are to respond only to his voice. Following his voice and no other. And we need this because all around us are other voices seeking to shape us. Other voices seeking to define our identity in some other way other than what we read here in God's word. We are told, for example, that we should find our identity in our achievements, perhaps academic achievements or vocational achievements or even the achievements of having a family. We are told that we should find our identity in our possessions, in our social status, in our abilities, in our personalities. We are told that we are to put ourselves at the very center of our identity and that it is the self that shapes and defines us. But instead, we're told by the psalmist that we are the people of the Lord. He is the one who watches over us. He is the one who cares for us. 
He is the one who has entered into this covenant relationship with us. And he expects for us, as his called out people, to live out of this relationship with him. Not out of some other false identity shaped by another voice. Again, that was our fundamental problem that goes all the way back to the garden. Listening to another voice besides the voice of our Lord. And so this is who we are. The sheep of his pasture. Those who belong to the great God. The creator of all. Those who have been made his treasured possession. And so we see here that we are to worship the Lord. We've seen the reason for our worship because of who God is as creator, shepherd, redeemer. And we've seen that we are to worship him because of who we are. Sheep who have been called out to be his chosen people. But we also see in this psalm what this worship looks like. Worship is explained. Worship is defined for us in verses 1, 2, and 6. We are told that worship looks like bowing before Him. Worship looks like joyfully singing to the Lord. And it looks like coming before Him in thanksgiving. And so the point here is that whether in posture, whether in voice, or whether in disposition of the heart, all that we are is to be given to the Lord in worship. And I realize that as Presbyterians, we tend to look at those psalms that tell us that we are to bow before the Lord and to lift our hands in worship to Him. And we say, well, those things are not really to be taken literally. Those are things that are just cultural. Well, that might be a discussion for another time, but very simply, I would ask, well, why not? Why not assume that posture of humility and vulnerability in which it is good for you to acknowledge that the Lord is God and you are not? Who of us does not need to be reminded of that daily in our time of prayer with the Lord? To bow in humble adoration before Him because He alone is the one who is worthy of such adoration. And worship is also described as singing. Someone has put it like this. That in singing, our belief is knitted together with our affections and desires. And so it is in our singing that we openly and publicly express our devotion to the Lord. And as we sing truth about His nature, as we do so, that truth about who God is penetrates deeper into our hearts. It's in singing that our mind and will and affections are all brought together in service to the Lord. Worship is also described as thanksgiving. And so if you were to come worshiping the Lord with a thankful heart... Well, that presupposes that there has been preparation on your part as you come to worship the Lord. Now, there might be times in your life in which you come to worship where you are facing circumstances that uh, create all sorts of discouragement in your life. Perhaps you come to worship with heavy hearts. When we are told, you see that we are to come with thanksgiving, that means that we are not to come to worship with a self-serving agenda, just seeking to get the things that we think we need. But if we are to come with thanksgiving, then clearly that means the focus of our worship is not to be on ourselves, but is to be upon the Lord. And if we are to come with a thankful heart, then that means that there is always something in our life that we have to be thankful for, even in the midst of the greatest hardship and trial that we might experience. 
And so when we come to worship and we struggle in our lives to be thankful, and perhaps we wrestle at times with the dullness of worship, what we need to do is to acknowledge that the problem is really with ourselves. That we are to come not with a focus upon ourselves, but we are to come preparing to fix our gaze upon the Lord, the one whom we have much to be thankful toward. Now, worship, we could say, is also listening. We see that in verse 7, where we are exhorted to heed the call of the Lord and to listen to His voice. So, yes, worship is singing. Yes, worship is prayer. It is having hearts of thanksgiving, but it is also listening to His voice, listening to the truth of His Word and what He has to say to us, His people. You know, so much of our life throughout our week is talking, isn't it? Talking to ourselves, speaking our opinions about everything, even things that we know nothing about as though we're an authority on those things. But listening is sitting in a posture of humility, bowing to his authority, acknowledging that you need to hear his voice and longing to hear his voice. And that gets us finally to the warning that we are given here towards the end of the psalm in verses 8 through 11. The warning here is really to know your own hearts. And it was those who experienced firsthand the deliverance of the Lord who were filled with those accusations toward Him that again we read from Exodus 17. But in their complaint against the Lord, it was not simply about water. Elder Campbell read there in verse 7, They tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The accusation is this. If He were here among us, our circumstances would be different. If He really cared about me, then my life would not be so hard. Yes, He poured out those ten plagues upon the Egyptians. Yes, He fought for our deliverance while we did nothing but look to Him to bring us redemption. Yes, he parted the Red Sea that we might walk across on dry ground, causing the walls of the sea to fall and collapse on our enemies, crushing and destroying them. Yes, he provides manna for us every single day to sustain our life. Yes, he even preserves our clothes miraculously that they would not wear out through all these years of wilderness wandering. But does he really love me? Does he really care for me? Can I really trust him? Is he with me in my trials? It's a warning that the psalm gives to all of us because we all have hearts of pride and arrogance and self-focus. And so we can guard our hearts by keeping before us always the message of grace, those great and mighty acts of God's redeeming love. And to remember who we are, that we are a pilgrim people, arrived and yet not arrived. Yes, redeemed in Christ with that eternal inheritance secured in Him, and yet still persevering throughout this life. And so we need our eyes and our ears ever focused upon the good news of Christ, the rock who has given us spiritual life. Because he was struck with the rod of judgment in our place. And he will lead us home to our heavenly inheritance. Listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Believe and trust 
and know that this great day of rest is coming in the Lord Jesus. And submit to his authority. Because a submission to his authority is evidence that your heart has been given to him. B.B. Warfield, uh, in a sermon on the Spirit's great longing for the hearts of his people, says this. See us steeped in the sin of the world, loving evil for evil's sake, hating God and all that God stands for ever seeking to drain deeper and deeper the cup of our sinful indulgence. The Spirit follows us unwaveringly through all. He is not driven away because we are sinners. He comes to us because being sinners, we need Him. He is not cast off because we reject His loving offices. He abides with us because our rejection of Him would leave us helpless. He does not condition his further help upon our recognizing and returning his love. His continuance with us is conditioned only on his own love for us. And that love for us is so strong, so mighty, and so constant that it can never fail. When he sees us immersed in sin and rushing headlong to destruction, he does not turn from us. He yearns for us with jealous envy. It is in the hands of such love that we have fallen. And it is because we have fallen into the hands of such love that we have before us a future of eternal hope. When we lose hope in ourselves, when the present becomes dark and the future black before us, when effort after effort has issued only in disheartening failure and our sin looms big before our despairing eyes, when our hearts hate and despise themselves, and we remember that God is greater than our hearts and cannot abide the least iniquity, the Spirit whom He has sent to bring us to Him still labors with us, not in indifference or hatred, but in pitying love. Yea, His love burns all the stronger because we so deeply need His help. He is yearning after us, yearning after us with jealous envy.